Broadcasting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet. You are listening to... And I'm your host, Alpha Mike, on episode 101, 101. We have produced episodes on Raider Cop Nation. Today we are going to speak about the Cuban Mafia. As a follow-up, of course, to our last episode 100 that we spoke about the Tampa Mafia and the Traficante crime family. The importance of that episode, number 100, and the Tampa mob produces, to some extent, what we will be talking about for these two new episodes, 101 and 102, the Cuban Mafia. But before we jump into that, we, as always, you can always contact us on RaiderCopNation.com. Our, our numbers are moving up, very productive, very happy about that. Of course, test everything, 1521, which is 15 minutes or less, people, of God's Word for your life. Just 15 minutes or less. The actual show is called A Wall Monday. So if you didn't make it to church this past Sunday, you can turn on A Wall Monday, turn yourself in for 15 minutes, and listen to the powerful Word of God. Those numbers, not as high as I would like. More proof that the scriptures are true. People just don't want to hear God's word in the last days. All right, let's jump right in into the leadership quote. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Proverbs 17.22. As always, we have always said that the scripture brings wisdom, leadership, courage, salvation, healing, you name it. It does everything for you. Today's episode 101. We have reached the pinnacle of 101 episodes on Raider Cop Nation. Of course, the beginning was not Raider Cop Nation. We used to be El Police Radio. We did about 30, I believe it was, 30, 31 episodes. Switched over to a new name, Raider Cop Nation. And we are producing, uh, I thank God, we have not missed uh, one week. We started launching early on on Thursdays. And then we switched it to Wednesdays with all the other podcasts. Everybody does Wednesdays. The vast majority are probably 80 to 90% launch on a Wednesday. It's all statistical stuff. Um, it's a bore you to death if I get into it. But um, we have not missed one episode, and I thank God for that. We have a lot of material. A lot of people tell us, well, when are you going to, you know, are you going to, Ever have a dry season? I never have a dry season. A lot of material to talk about. Of course, we have different platforms. We have the Wise Guys series that we're talking about now. The Roll Call series, which is day-to-day operation in law enforcement. Thinking out of the box. It's about leadership. It's about leading 
your organization at your level, whether you're low-ranking, mid-level, you haven't even gotten into law enforcement, you're just a civilian and want to support your local police, or you're a command-level personnel, how to think out of the box. Very important. A lot of people just do things because that's the way it is. And, of course, our other episode is the sidebar. The sidebar series and that deals with a lot of political overtones. The reason we have to bring that into this law enforcement podcast is because, unfortunately, there's an evil group out there of Bolsheviks that are doing their damnedest to kill law enforcement as you and I know it today. And the reason for it is because it's the death of America, and that's what they're trying to produce. Hate, hate, hate. All day long, identity politics, cops are no good, they shoot people, they're evil, this, that, and the other thing. So we have been thrown in the defense of our law enforcement officials into the political arena, as that, that there is no other reason for it. But we take on the challenge. I do want to take the opportunity to say that I am preparing a episode for December. It is called The Friends Within. I encourage all to listen. Now, at the end of that episode, I will be doing another episode too. And it's going to be talking about uh, the prayer. That's what we're going to call the show. These two are loaded, loaded, loaded pistols on political, uh, the political arena. And part of the sidebar Series. It will open up your eyes. It will take away any doubt that you might have. It will dismask those individuals that are killing America slowly. As a result of that, there are two people that will listen to this show. The ones that will never be changed of their mind, and I am wrong, and I am a conspiracy nut, or those that have open mind and do want to listen and do as I do, dig into the facts. Because, my friends, I have broadcast these things digging into facts. I do the who, what, when, where, why, and how, and I throw them together in a basket, and I answer each one of those questions, and that turns into an episode. That's how we roll here on Raider Cop Nation, and we will always roll that way. We just don't throw out a bunch of... uh, uh, accusations, and then we uh, go to commercial message. That's not how we're rolling here. So these uh, shows that I'm doing, they will be in December, politically loaded, sidebar series. There will be their hashtag on them, and they deal with Friends Within. It is an offshoot of a documentary that I will mention at that appropriate time, After the podcast, I encourage you, the listener, to watch that um, documentary that we're doing the off-spin on because it opened my eyes. I have dug in and continue to dig into each allegation, and I haven't found one thing wrong yet, which is more alarming. We are in a fight for our country. This is a civil war without bullets. It is an intellectual war for our country that 
You, the American citizen, not the illegal alien, have the right to vote. The right to vote based on your knowledge. Don't be a political dummy or political midget. Learn who these candidates are. Learn who these people are. Actually learn what they are standing for. Stop throwing away, throwing off the, uh, off the shelf just political terms like racist, bigot, and so forth. Learn who these monsters are that want to take your civil liberties away and your children's civil liberties away. Now, I'll slow down now before you start calling me a conspiracy nut and I get pulled off uh, every social media platform there is and get an, a mental evaluation done for me. All right, so before we start episode 101, Cuban Mafia, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on on Facebook. A lot of um, emails or questions have been going on. What? Did, you get, did you get kicked off of Facebook? What's going on? So a brief explanation. We on our Raider Cop Nation uh, Facebook page posted uh, kind of a joke over the issue with Jeffrey Epstein. And we all know his story killed himself, allegedly, in prison, awaiting trial as a pedophile. And uh, it was discovered uh, deceased or... What hanging? Don't we don't really have the details. So I don't want to get that far into that. So, what we did was we posted like everybody else. Everybody had a funny little memo that they wanted to place on the internet. So we placed one of Jeffrey S. Epstein's nurse that was taking care of him that night as a picture of Hillary in a nurse uniform. So Facebook wrote us this real long, drawn-out, monotonous rules and regulations stuff that we supposedly broke by placing that information on social media with no evidence that that is true. Now, obviously, the mental retards, all the mental midgets at Facebook can't tell the difference between a joke and actual facts. So the way the... Facebook operation works, they make money off of your feed. Now, we did not get kicked off. We did not get placed in Facebook jail like other people have. No, none of that. We were received a flag or a warning that if we do it again, we will suffer whatever consequences. But we decided to put ourselves in the penalty box and we have knocked out for a week coming back on the, uh, well, you would have heard this show already by the time we come back. And that's going to be on Monday the 19th. So we went out for about a week. Why? There will be no posting. There will be no interaction from us or any of the other platforms that we use on Facebook. We have froze. Now, Somebody may say, well, the gazillion dollars that they have, how much of an impact will you make? Probably little to none. But the effort is there, and I encourage all, start practicing this 
placing yourself in the penalty box, it is, believe me, hurting Facebook because they operate based on um, ads and so forth and movement of traffic, and especially what you post. So if you freeze it for a week or freeze it for three days or four days or whatever, it, uh, it adds up, folks, and it sends these liberal nuts down there in Bombay, India, that are probably reviewing the content, and um, no disparity to our Indian friends. It's just a joke also. But I don't know who does the censorship policing at Facebook, but they're not too bright. If they couldn't figure that out, that was a joke. Now, I've bored you enough, like I say. Time to jump into episode 101, The Cuban Mafia. Let's start this. We have a lot to talk about in this episode, so we've decided to break it down into not one episode, but two, and uh, you will definitely find out as we move along on this episode. A lot of material to cover, and we're basically not talking about a smaller era of time. We're, we're going into uh, Cuba, the Cuban era the 1930s, 40s, 50s, that were transitioning into the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and even to present day today, when we talk about the Cuban Mafia. There's an evolution that we have to discuss, and that's why we have broken it down into two parts. Now, the rules of engagement are very simple. When you hear this tone... The small bell, you will be alerted that the person that I just mentioned will become a future episode under the Wise Guy series format or hashtag. That, like I said, we started off with episode 100, the Tampa Mob. That leads us now into a lot of other tentacles that are opening in the mob as well. There are going to be names that we will mention. We will give a little brief description of them. And then, of course, if you hear the sound of the bell, that tells you that they are a future episode. Now, we want to start off by giving a recognition to the author of the book called The Corporation, which is T.J. English. He wrote a lot of other mob books. Uh, the Westies and stuff uh, in, in regards to the Irish mob in New York. And he took a plunge at the Cuban mafia and called the corporation. The corporation was the the name that the group had started calling itself a little bit a little bit after or much after they actually formatted. So 
uh, this has blown the lid of a very secret society. A lot of Cuban Americans basically don't even know anything about this, or if they do, very little. So T.J. English dives in there, does a lot of the investigative work, writes a book almost 600 pages long. My hat goes off to him. And uh, from there, this has been brought by uh, DiCaprio, the actor, and um, they're bouncing it around on uh, making the movie. And um, I'm not going to say who's playing in it, who's what role, because, of course, all that is subject to Hollywood change. But the movie is going to be coming out. Now, I hope it has nothing to do like Scarface. A lot of people like Scarface. I think it's one of the freaking worst gangster movies I've ever seen. Poor accents. I mean, it was just it was pathetic. Well, meet my little friend. I mean, it should have been a cartoon uh, uh, better than a movie. But uh, some people live by big posters, and they love the movie. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm an old... Godfather fanatic. Think uh, Godfather 1, Godfather 2 was up there with one of the best movies ever made in in movies. So um, Scarface was uh, a little cartoon compared to that. All right. Let's start off with the Cuban Mafia. We start off in the year is 1929, September 14th. Young man is born by the name of Jose Miguel Battle Vargas. He is born in a town of Alto Songo in Cuba, which is in Oriente, where close to where Guantanamo is. For those our American friends that only know how to, uh, oh yeah, Guantanamo. This is the, the, the military base there where they hold the terrorists. So that's their understanding of Cuba. Jose Miguel was born there in that town of Alto Songo, and as a young man. He has a, a five brothers. He uh, wants to get a steady job, and one of the steady jobs that he thought about was getting into police work. At the tender age of 19, he enrolls in the police department, gets selected, goes through an academy process, and after a short little stint, he is all of a sudden picked up and delivered Air Express across the tiny country of Cuba, and he lands in Havana, Cuba. Reason for this is it is during the era of gambling. We are probably sometime in the 19th, after the Second World War, and gambling has started to really take off in Cuba. As a result, there was a lot of hotels, casinos, and gambling but they were mostly run by Cubans. The problem that the government had when they initially started is that there was a lot of thievery going on from Cubans themselves working on uh, the card games or, or the jukebox or the, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the thing with the, with the handle. What do you call this? The slot machine. That's how much I play. Uh, I gambled. I can't even remember the terms. So, they brought in the government of Cuba, brought in a professional to clean up the act that knew about gambling and knew about skimming. And that individual was also known in American circles as Meyer Lansky. 
Of course, Lancey, growing up uh, in New York City as a young man, came migrated from Russia as an immigrated Jew. He lived in the ghettos of New York at the time, and he had a good friend in the name of Charlie Lucky Luciano. They grew up together. And, of course, we know that Luciano created the Italian Mafia, but Lansky was very uh, much a part of what is considered the syndicate, not really known as a Jewish Mafia, but at the time more of a syndicate. They pretty much operated with anybody as long as money was to be made. Lansky had a tremendous position, and he had vision for the rackets. And where he saw the opportunity in Cuba, he jumped at it. He fulfilled the outreach that President Batista had put out for Lansky to come over to Cuba and run those casinos and not only organize it, skim it for his own purposes, but he also saw a lucrative opportunity for the syndicate and for La Costa Nostra, the mafia in Cuba. So that opportunity comes. And at the same time, there's a young man by the name of Jose Miguel Battle. He is being sent out from the police over in Oriente Province into Havana. And they throw him into, of all places, vice which they basically dealt with uh, illegal gambling, prostitution, stuff like that. And he was going to be placed undercover type of operation, plain clothes, in hotels. Now, there's two thoughts that are come to mind here. Thought number one was the angle that they were playing, that the current police officers in Havana were kind of corrupt. So therefore, when Lansky comes in, he encourages the government to get a whole bunch of new cops so they make this lateral transfer from around the country into the casinos because they don't know any better. The other thought is that they don't want the local cops anywhere near what's about to go down because... They're more gangster than the gangsters themselves. So the young Jose Miguel Battle shows up to Cuba as a vice cop and does his due diligence and whatever assignments he was given. But during his course of his assignments, his superiors started to watch and and have a watchful eye for him, and they kind of pulled him over to the side and they said, son, we don't make a lot here, so we're always thinking about opportunity. Shortly after, certain individuals in Havana casinos, the owners, one of them by the name of Martin Fox, and he was a banker of a lot of operations, especially Bolita. He was also the owner of the Tropicana Hotel. So he knew the rackets, and he knew them very well. He took Miguel, uh, Jose Miguel Battle, under his wing, and he 
kind of broke them in to tell them not that we're going to bribe our way out of any arrest. No, he didn't do that. What he basically said is, son, I need you to take this envelope and give it to your chief of police, which he doofully did because he was told to. And, of course, it was a payoff and a payoff to his chief of police. At that time, he was a vice cop in 1951. They were skimming off the top chief of police. The, his superiors were all making money. And he looked around and he said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. He paid off his chief of police, the guy by the name of Jose Salas Canzaras. And uh, he was making up to $5,000, and that's a lot of money, 1951, a month from the casino rackets that were going on. Those payments were coming out of Fox. Mr. Martin Fox also took the opportunity of introducing young Jose Miguel Battle to not only other hotel owners, but some of these American gangsters that had come down here and are running the operation to make sure that the operations that they were running ran smoothly. There was several introductions made, and of course the first one was to Meyer Lansky. He was the guy running the casino floors on a lot of hotels. Miguel Battle was introduced, and he moved on. He had his day-to-day -day operations. He wasn't really going to get involved in anything. There was the carrot arrest every month. Carrot arrest meaning they give something up just to make it have a good appearance that law and order was being conducted, and everybody was happy. But Mr. Fox also introduced young Jose Miguel Battle to a Italian mafioso by the name of Santos Traficante Jr. Now, Santos Traficante Jr. at the time was not the boss of the Traficante family. His dad was. His father, he was a capo, a captain, and his father dispatched him to Cuba since 1946 to organize those casinos and gambling and the operation that the Italian La Costa Nostra could pull off in Cuba. Of course, the Traficantes had moved down there, actually. They were actually living there. That's how lucrative uh, the operation had begun. So, while in Havana in 1952 battle, uh, he got married. And uh, the offspring of that marriage was young son by the name of Jose Miguel Battle Jr. What a coincidence. Took after the old man's full name by placing Jr. at the end of his. Living in a section of Havana called Luyanol. Quite coincidentally, in this era, in the 1950s, my parents live in the same area. And, and it's Cerro in a section called Lulinod. So, coincidentally, they all live in the same place. How small the world, my friends. So, Battle gets married, has a son, and he is 
getting more and more involved, of course, in what is lucrative, what makes money, how they make money, how they skim, and, of course, Bolita. He is learning the trade, making money. He is uh, living high on the hog, and pretty much he's planned out his future uh, with those organized rackets in Cuba, probably in his mind for the next 30, 40 years. But time will change everything as a bearded, smelly, cigar-toking individual will all of a sudden seize the country like Bernie Sanders on a white horse, take it over for his own lucrative and selfish behaviors and conduct something called, at the time he said he wasn't, but he really was a communist, and that was that would be Fidel Castro. Changing, and of course, kicking out the mafia and all traces of organized crime, casino gambling. Didn't fit with the communist mold, so they got rid of it. Now, during the time of the 1950s, he becomes more and more closer to Santos Traficante. And, of course, Martin Fox has more of his mentor. They're showing him the ropes. Miguel, Jose Miguel Battle is perfectly content with what's going on. And everything seems good, so good, in fact, that at one time, Mr. Fox gives him a payment to make at the presidential palace in the amount of $1.5 million to be given to Batista. When he does pay it off, he is, of course, goes through Batista's personal security. And the match is made in heaven because, you see, Jose Miguel Batal is from Oriente, where exactly Batista is from also. So there was some brotherly love there. The $1.5 million payoff was actually a weekly payoff. Now, let that one sink in. $1.5 million a week. A week. That's what the, um, the, ba- the Batistas were making in Cuba. Battle now, just being a young vice cop, he's more and more into it now. He's almost got a decade under his wing. And, uh, and each day that went by, he became more and more powerful. Of course, he had powerful friends. 1959 comes, and we have now troublemakers with long hair and beards. And they are about to take over the government. Of course, in uh, December 31st, 1959, Batista says, you know what? I've been doing pretty good with my $1.5 million take a week for several, several years. And I think I will be loading all this on two private planes that will be taking me one to Santo Domingo and another one will take me to Spain later on. Well, I will enjoy the fruits of my labor. He abandons the government, and now everybody all of a sudden is shocked, overwhelmed, and unfortunately, 
a lot of people are happy because Fidel Castro comes into power under great cheers and hurrahs from the community. Don't be hoodwinked. He fooled them big time. Now, of course, battle when all this transition started in 1959, he was as depressed as they can be. And uh, immediately the Castro regime took power. They uh, demoted him from vice cop that he was living large in those casinos. And he was transferred to become a transportation cop in the Transportation Bureau. That and watching paint dry was about the equivalent of his career now. On a miserable salary and no French benefits like being a vice cop, things were not looking good. Remember that Jose Miguel Battle had a young son and a wife, and he now makes the big plunge. On December 28, 1959, he decides to pack it all up, get on a boat, and get uh, go on that boat all the way to go see the Statue of Liberty and get off in New York City where he now is going to settle in this new country. And of course, like many, many Cubans, he showed up in that era, the 19, end of 1959, 1661, as, oh, this is only temporary until they get rid of... Uh, the bearded wonder down there. So he showed up and did the same. He settles into a community, quite coincidentally also, that my family lived when they migrated from Cuba to New York City, and that is in St. Nicholas. My, um, I actually was born in a place called uh, Jewish Memorial Hospital, doesn't longer exist, my family lived on 22 February Avenue, which is close to St. Nicholas, just north of, a little bit north of it. And, of course, it was a growing Cuban community at the time. So he, young Jose Miguel Battle is now in New York City. He has to provide for his family. They're, they're left behind, wife and child. And now he's, how do I make a living? What do I do? How do I do? And they get him involved in the CIA plot of the Bay of Pigs. Radical Cubans that started getting organized by the CIA through the prior administration of Eisenhower to overthrow the Cuban Fidel Castro government in the Battle of the Bay of Pigs. Of course, the election, Eisenhower no longer running. Uh, Nixon runs against Kennedy. Kennedy wins. Kennedy becomes president, and he inherits this Operation Bay of Pigs that the CIA is plotting. And although he did not want to do it, he agreed to. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit of how that whole operation just didn't work. Now, young Jose Miguel Battle, his visa from Cuba over to New York was about to run out, and he had to make a decision what he was going to do. Well, he started hearing about these freedom fighters in the CIA, and he said, what the hell, I might as well join the call, the battle cry here. 
enjoying the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion. He uh, gets enrolled, goes through the physical and everything else that is warranted. They are shipped to Guatemala for training, and they get ready for this golden opportunity of overthrowing the Cuban Fidel Castro government. Thousands of Cubans sign up for this, and it's something that they believe in a very short time they'll be back home. Unfortunately, it did not work out that way. A lot of air support that the government needed was not brought in under Kennedy's orders. Kennedy wanted no connection between the Bay of Pigs uh, soldiers that were landing and the American government, even though everybody on the planet knew that the Americans were behind it. And that, therefore... No air cover. Of course, Fidel, through the great communists in this country that tipped them off, that they were coming with the evasion. Uh, so Fidel and his army were ready at the Bay of Pigs as they were disembarking to attack it. So it was a slaughter. As simple as that. And Miguel, Jose Miguel Battle became a very heroic soldier in the Bay of Pigs. Now, I'm not going to go into that whole scenario because it would take out too much time, but he valiantly fought during the Bay of Pigs, saved several uh, soldiers' life, and uh, he was very renowned for it within uh, the Bay of Pigs group called Brigade 2506. The brigade still exists today, the the name Brigade 2506 came from one of their fallen comrades during the time that they were training in Guatemala, doing a training exercise. He died, and his ID number was 2506, so the brigade took the name Brigade 2506, and they, as I said, are still around today. Many of the survivors of Brigade 2506, went on to serve for many, many years in the CIA, and they also are known for the Watergate break-in. The I believe there were three Cubans that broke into the Hotel Watergate for uh, the Nixon administration. And, uh, of course, a lot of them served in the United States Army as well, after the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs blew up. Everybody was uh, um, either uh, killed or they were imprisoned. There was uh, negotiations between the U.S. and Cuba, and Fidel subsequently releases them all back to America after he got the payments that he want and medical supplies. So he comes back now, and he says, what the hell am I going to do now? This was, a, this was a fiasco, is what it was. Now, during this, well, after the Bay of Pigs, a lot of Cuban soldiers at that time, uh, as I said, they branched out, worked for the CIA. Some branched out and worked um, in the U.S. Army and uh, soldiered up. And some went out and broke off and became their own groups like Alpha 66 and Omega 7, which will later be 
categorized in this country as terrorist organizations. But they were adamant about uh, getting back their so-called Cuban country from this madman with the beard that had it. And Miguel, uh, Jose Miguel Battle wasn't having it. He, um, the invasion took place on April 16th, 1961. After that, he did a small little stint in the army and um, he still wasn't feeling, got out and he brought a bar, got himself a bar um, when he came back. And this time he's over in uh, New Jersey, right across the George Washington Bridge in Union City. And he buys a little place on um, 48th Street and Palisades Avenue. Now, he knew that this place could make money. He started to thinking and resorting back to his old days. And he said, you know what? I could probably make money out of Bolita, out of this operation. And some other things, maybe. But uh, what he was being told is, you just can't open up a gambling operation in New York and New Jersey this is all mobbed up over here. So young Jose Miguel Battle takes off and heads towards sunny Florida to look for his pal, Santos Traficante Jr., person that mentored him in the, as a young vice cop in Havana. And he says, if I can get an audience with Santo, I know that I could get in on the rackets. Not soon enough, he does have a meeting with Santos, and I'm sure that it went well. We know that based on the book and based on governmental evidence in his, his uh, hearings. But this is how I feel, in my opinion, that that would have went off. Of course, Jose Miguel must have had connections through the Brigade 2506 that knew uh, people that were living in Tampa and that uh, were Cuban and working in the Bolita operation that could get a hold of Santo Traficante. Of course, uh, Santo Traficante's younger brother, Henry Traficante, ran the Bolita operations in Tampa. So that connection was made pretty fair and fair and easy. And uh, it was homecoming uh, day. Miguel ran over there and gave old Santos a good hug. And uh, then he told him, I need a favor. And of course, Santos Traficante Jr. never to say no because he knew if he said yes, it came with an envelope, heard the proposition. Now, the proposition, in my opinion, was... I'm thinking about opening up a gambling operation. Santos's question, where at? Because it all depends of where you're going to for the size of the envelope. Of course, Tampa would have been out of the question. How do I know that? Because there's no mention of Henry Traficante in any of these hearings. So therefore, there's no way that Jose Miguel Battle operated in Tampa. Off limits. Old man said, "Nah, you can go somewhere else, but not, uh, you know, my little brother Henry's not easy. So he ends up probably offering Miami. 
Now, in Miami, and I won't mention the name because I've been told that this operation has been sold, but it was a Cuban sandwich shop that had its own type of special source on these Cuban sandwiches that were about a foot long. And let me tell you, they left a super taste in your mouth. They were delicious. But, of course, the Cuban sandwiches being sold out of these operations were fronts for Bolita. So most likely, Jose Miguel got the permission from Santos Traficante to operate in Miami at a 10% tax. Of course, the first payment was made right there at that meeting, and everybody was happy. But young Jose Miguel now probably told Santos he wasn't going to leave this golden calf just disappear. He said, well, wait a minute. I also have ambitions to open up in New York, in New Jersey. Santos had to think and think quick. He goes, well, I'm not going to really... I can take this two ways. I can agree to it, which I will, because I know he'll owe me a favor, and I'm sure I'll get an envelope here and there. So he said yes. But now he can either introduce young Jose Miguel Battle to his friends in the mob Either way, one of two ways, as a friend of mine or a friend of ours. Now, of course, young Jose Miguel, we're going to change his name now to Mike, Mike Battle, uh, could never have been made in the Italian mafia because he was an Italian. So he could only have been an associate under Santo Traficante. But none of that was going to work because if, let's say, Mike Battle makes a big mistake and screws up, they're going to come looking for Santos. So Santos wasn't going to do that. So Santos probably went on and said, he's a friend of mine that may make you guys a lot of money. Of course, Santos Traficante being very powerful and influential, he had a seat on the Mafia Commission. The time frame must have been sometime after 1967, 1968, around there, that this was done. Therefore, a lot of documentation about Santos being in New York. In fact, he had his residence in Tampa. He owned a residence in North Miami Beach as well. And he had an apartment somewhere in Manhattan. So Santos got around. And he was a commission member, a boss. So, of course, he made, first thing he had to do was put a motion on the floor to the commission for a young Mike Battle to operate Bolita operations in New York and New Jersey. They probably gave him the go-ahead, and then he had to, Santos, make the introductions to the appropriate families based on the jurisdictions that this was going to be done. Of course, since it's going to New Jersey and we're going to do this on uh, the area of Union City, that operation is run by the Divicante crime family and Sam the Plumber. Sam the Plumber ran the New Jersey mob and is the famous voice in The Godfather, Vito Corleone, when he talks like this, because 
Sam the Plumber talked like that. And they, when they were reviewing for the movie The Godfather, Marlon Brando heard a tape of his voice and said, I don't know who he is, but that's the voice I want to use. And that's the voice he used. Of course, an envelope quickly must have emerged for Sam the Plumber of 10% in the operations. But the New Jersey Del Cavacante family wasn't all that in a bag of chips to be getting in the way because he also wanted to go to New York. So it wasn't going to make any sense for New Jersey to say, no, you can't operate here, and you're going to cross to Huston and operate over there. So Sam the plumber knew better and just got his envelope and said, good luck to you, kid. Hope the envelopes come in bigger. And then he went off, and he must have gotten the approval from at least three of the five Costa Nostra families in New York. So let's take a look. Now we have one sitting boss with no problem. His name is Carlo Gambino. Of course, Carlo took over the operation of Murder Incorporated when his boss, Albert Anastasia, was put to death in 1957 while getting a shave and a haircut. And the other boss, Carlo Gambino, quickly took over the rackets of Murder Incorporated. Vito Genovese was one of the head bosses at the time. He gave him the nod and said, you know what? You can call the family your own name, the Gambino family, which still exists today. The other boss on the year thumbs up party must have been Vito Genovese himself. But Vito was a little bit um, tied up at the time since he was in prison. So he had to have gone to his buddy, um, one of the street bosses at the time, to get the okay for this. And that's going to be Gianardo Jerry Catania. Now, why is this important? Jerry Catania was the boss of the Genovese, street boss of the Genovese crime family from 1957 to 1972. So at that time, he was also in charge of the Jersey Rockets. Get it? So if Jerry gives you the okay, you kill two birds with one stone. So Jerry was very influential in that commission vote. Then we got to look at uh, our friends over at the uh, the, um, the Lucchese camp crime family. And, of course, 1967, the mentor to Santos Traficante Jr., Tommy Lucchese, dies, dies of of, of a, a brain tumor and his uh, family now goes into a three party you know couples three couple ruling commission and of course Don Carlo Gambino he kind of hints no this is the guy I want because we're buddies and so I can make more money off of him and uh, so they probably picked the guy that Carlo wanted and he must have been part of that ruling commission at the time. So who is he? Well, it's Carmine Mr. Gibbs Tramonti. And that's the one that Carlo wanted on the commission. Of course, the Capos wanted Tony Ducks Corallo. But Tony Ducks was in, had a little problem at the time. He was in jail. So uh, Don Carlo got what he wanted and Mr. Gibbs's running the Lucchese family. So he must have gave thumbs up for that too. That leaves us with the Bonanno family, and they were doing the Banana Wars at the time. So 
Uh, Joseph Benano, the family father, as he used to call himself, was a good friend of Santos Traficante Sr. and Jr. But in uh, this, I don't think he must have had the ability to sit on the commission because due to the fact that he wanted to kill Lucchese and Gambino, I would say he was persona non gratis, so there's no way he could have been on the commission. So it was probably either De Gregorio, which was uh, the couple that the commission put on the Bonanno family, but he was a, mostly a flop, and the real boss, which was Carmine Galante. So the Bananos could have given thumbs up or thumbs down. It didn't matter because... They already got the votes they wanted with Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese. Of course, the Colombo family, Joe Colombo, new kid on the block. He was he got the nod and the, and the and the wink by Carlo Gambino to, to be a boss in the first place. After he they knocked off Profaci, so that made it real easy uh, for the for the ruling panel. So here we are. We're at the end of this episode now. And where we pick up on episode number 102, we're going to talk about other characters that were handlers of young Mike Battle. And that is Fat Tony Solarno being one of them. And that will give us an understanding as these rackets, the Bolita rackets, are going to take off in huge, huge numbers. Episode 102, we're going to talk about why Bolita was so popular in areas of New York and New Jersey in the first place and what what made Mike Battle so smart in this Bolita operation. And we'll talk about that in episode 102. It has been my honor and my pleasure to be your host on Radio Cop Nation. As always, continue to pray for yourself because without you in the fight, we have nothing. Pray for your family, pray for your community, pray for the agency that serves you, and most important, never forget to continue praying for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike, and I'm out. And guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the prairies. To the oceans, white with foam, God bless America, my home, sweet.